You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Steve, I know that you worked at a law firm when you first <laughs> moved out here. I did. I worked at multiple law firms when I first moved out here. It those, was a great... Those day gigs. <laughs> those day gigs. It's great for actors and writers and producers and folks who are trying to break into the biz. So it's serendipitous <laughs> that we would be talking about this particular person today who I did not know about until I read your blog. Ooh, I love that. Yes. To me, it's very telling that actor Robert Wagner wrote about this person. Yes. He said, he, and I won't say his name quite yet, was the only person I ever knew in Hollywood who was a star without making a picture. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we're talking about legal eagle, lawyer to the stars, Greg Boutzer. And in reading about his life, I really couldn't think of another attorney that even compares to the life and career of this man. <laughs> and the social life, my Ooh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We've had famous attorneys before. We had Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark. Nobody came close to the celebrity status enjoyed by Greg Boutzer. And he, on multiple levels. I mean, he was the divorce attorney to the stars. <laughs> to everybody. To everybody. But he also negotiated some of the most important contracts of the day for corporations and yes. for actors. And he really was multi-talented behind the scenes as well. <laughs> you know, he was. He was like this peerless power broker. He cleaned up messes. He handled yep. legal affairs of the rich and famous. But also also, he had drop-dead gorgeous movie star good looks, and he was a popular fodder for the gossip colonists because of his dating history. I mean, he dated Hollywood's most beautiful stars, Lana Turner, Dorothy L'Amour, Joan Crawford, Marlena Dietrich, Meryl Oberon, Greer Garson, Jane Wyman, Ella Range, Ginger Rogers. I mean, there was not an actress in Hollywood, I think, that he missed. Yeah, <laughs> the, that's the definition of charisma. Yeah, which I'm, we'll I'm get assuming. into all of this. He grew up very working class in San Pedro, California, mm -hmm. kind of on the ship docks. But he always had this desire 
to be a part of the glamour of Hollywood. I think even as a boy, he set his mark pretty early that that's what he wanted to do. And he had a marriage to a woman named Marion Johns, who was a Pasadena socialite. Yes. And he graduated from USC. And if you want to meet wealthy folks, even yes. back then, you go to USC. They got married. His in-laws loaned him $5,000 to open his law firm. <laughs> and what does he do with the $5,000? He does open a law firm, but he spends most of it on designer wardrobe, daily lunches at the Brown Derby, which was the place where all the power brokers lunched. To be seen. He knew, you know, if he wanted to get in with that crowd, he had to be one of them. Yeah. And yeah. so he spent the money to make himself one of them, and which was genius. It was genius. It was a gamble, but because the guy is so good looking, <laughs> he is so charming, clearly a very intelligent person. And it, confident. <laughs> yeah, it paid off. Yes. Well, that's where he really started making Hollywood connections that launched his legal career. His law firm started out sort of fledgingly, but because of his nights out in nightclubs and rubbing elbows with stars and power brokers, he soon was getting people to pay attention and to bring their business to him. Yeah. But, and I, I don't want to say that he was a social climber, but I think his marriage to his first wife was probably very calculated. Obviously, it was calculated his decision to spend money to become one of the upper echelon of Hollywood. Right. And his next move was also, I think, a little calculated in that he began dating actress Isabel Jewell, who people may not remember her, but she was the young dying girl in Lost Horizon. Uh, and she was also, what I love her most from, was she was that horrible, trashy Emmy Slattery in Gone with the Wind who tries yes. to kick Scarlet out of Terra. <laughs> yes. So he's dating this actress, and he knows that he's going to gain yes. publicity for that. And sure enough, yes. Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper start talking about him. Right. Once he's on Hedda and Luella's radar. Katie yeah. barred the door. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's on his way. So he starts dating these beautiful actresses, including Claire Trevor. And at the same time, his legal business was booming. Around this time, uh, he entered his very first important relationship, uh, which was, and remind you, he's still married. <laughs> yeah, he's still married. But he meets Lana Turner. Who uh, was 16. She Hello. Was 16. He was 26. Lana was not quite a star, but she was absolutely on her way. And I think Bouncer recognized that. I think the the spark and the attraction was real. It was explosive. But yeah. I think he knew that she was going to be a big star. And they became a couple in Hollywood. They appeared at premieres together in nightclubs and kind of everywhere that the people you needed to know were hanging <laughs> exactly. out. Exactly. And I love what Lana Turner wrote about him in her 1982 autobiography. She said, with soulful dark eyes, a tanned complexion, and a flashing smile that showed lots of teeth, he was so smooth and so self-assured that all the other boys I knew seemed like children. Yeah, I can see. I mean, when you see photos of them, they make a very, very handsome yes, couple. They, and, you know, they became the it couple. And then, of course, that was what basically ended his marriage. But now he's all about Lana. They're right. in this power it couple relationship. And she's beginning to skyrocket yeah, MGM. Yeah, she's, she's doing really, really well, which means that Greg Boutzer and Lana Turner are not able to spend as much time together. Which is a little problematic because I don't think Greg Boutzer likes to sit around and wait for his woman. <laughs> I don't think he does either. And there's this story that you tell, and, and we're going to talk about Joan Crawford a little bit later in this episode. But this first <laughs> little kernel of Joan Crawford, it shows 
Queen it's, Bee. It's, yeah, Queen Bee. Oh, well, some and, other word. And, um, and, sto- <laughs> and I just want to add, this story, it actually comes from this wonderful new, well, new-ish book from 2013 called The Man Who Seduced Hollywood, The Life and Loves of Greg Boutzer, Tinseltown's Most Powerful Lawyer, which was written by B. James Gladstone. Yeah. So this is where the story comes yeah. from. Yeah. So Joan Crawford <laughs> calls up Lana Turner unexpectedly, right? I mean, Lana's yes. big, but Lana's not Joan Crawford. And, and Lana thinks that she and Greg are just golden. Yes. And so Joan Crawford invites her to tea at her Brentwood <laughs> home. All How is civilized. Well. And then uh, pick up the story from there, well, Steve. Well, once Lana gets there and they sit down to tea, Joan Crawford suddenly tells... <laughs> it's just it's awful. So awful. She basically tells Lana that Greg is no longer in love with her, that he's madly in love with Joan, and that Greg just had not figured out how to tell her yet so that she was going to have tea and tell her. So. And, it, and it really wasn't true. Or, or No. Yeah. They had a dalliance, but I don't think it was anything substantial. But I think Crawford read much more into it than yes. was there. And so she took it upon herself to end things for him right. <laughs> with Lana. Right. So from that point on, there was doubt yes. in Turner's mind and Lana's mind that Greg was really true and blue. Yes. And this leads to another story that we talked about uh, when we were talking about the web of love in Hollywood. Yes, yes. Um, Bouncer was supposed to take Lana and her mother out for a birthday celebration, and he stood her up. Uh-huh. So Lana just coincidentally gets a call from Artie Shaw, the great band leader who she had met on Dancing Co-Ed. And actually, she didn't even like Artie Shaw when she first met him, but she gets a call from him and he says, hey, you want to go out? Well, she was so irritated that Greg had stood her up. She says, sure, why not? Yeah. She goes out. Apparently, they had a great time. I guess so. They got on a plane and eloped and got married in Las Vegas. After one (laughs) night. And Bouncer, it's reported, was crushed. Oh, he was crushed. I think it was his turn to be uh, on the receiving end of a heartbreak. Now, Um, Turner's marriage to Shaw only lasts, it's six months, I think. I know. And guess who the divorce lawyer was? Um, Could that be Greg (laughs) Bouncer? You know, Greg knew an opportunity when he saw it. But but oddly, they remained really close friends entire lives, which I think was, well, I think Bouncer was known for his loyalty. You know, once you were in his inner circle, he never let go. And he always took care of you and he always cared yeah. for you. Yeah, and, and as we see throughout, as we talk more about him, people don't remain friends like that. And so clearly the man had, he definitely had his issues with the yes. ladies, but he was but loyal. He was loyal. Yes. He was loyal. So Greg, we know, is very popular with the ladies, <laughs> but he also has some friends in high places, including somebody we've talked about briefly yes. in a previous episode, the Maureen O'Hara episode, yes. Fake News, Billy Wilkerson, who was the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter and who started really the Red Scare yes, in, in Hollywood with his Billy's List, where yes. he would name names in The Hollywood Reporter. Yes, absolutely. It's funny because... Bouncer, as much as he was known for a ladies' man, he was also known for his bromances. He had such strong friendships with these power yes. brokers in Hollywood. I mean, big we, like Joe Shank yes, and you know, twentieth century Fox chief and people. Yeah. Billy Wilkerson, if you're to believe the rumor, he's the one who discovered Lana Turner, and that's how Bouncer met Wilkerson was through Lana, because apparently Wilkerson's the one who saw her on the soda fountain stool at Schwab's, but Wilkerson says it was not Schwab's. It, it was the um, Top Hat Cafe. It was a Top Hat Cafe. Yeah. So whichever legend you want to believe. <laughs> right. Wilkerson took an immediate liking to this young, ambitious lawyer in Bouncer. 
And he really took him under his wing. He recognized Boucher's hustle, his game. He mm-hmm. really admired him for it. So he opened up the world of Hollywood to Greg Boucher. And that's a pretty yes. connected person if you're the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. Yes. One of the things that really opened doors for Greg Boucher was that Wilkerson got him invited to these weekly poker games that were hosted by the 20th Century Fox chairman, uh, Joe Shank. And through this poker game, he met everybody. And this is where he became a real player in town. Yes, yes. So he's riding high. He's not only a ladies' man, he's connected to really the powerful people in Hollywood. Everything he ever dreamt of as a child. Exactly. And in 1940, he begins dating Paramount Pictures' leading lady, Dorothy L'Amour. L'Amour had been aware of Boutser. Yes, and and wasn't so into him at the beginning. No, because she knew he was a womanizer, (laughs) right? And she's even quoted as saying in her autobiography, I remember seeing him dancing with Lana Turner and smiling at me over her shoulder. Such a player. No, 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 no. (laughs) Such a player. (laughs) So she must have changed her mind. She wasn't interested, but she changed her mind, right? (laughs) Yes. As far as his legal work goes, this was a very important and integral time for him because he has two high-profile cases which really take him to the next level. And the first one was he defended actress Paulette Goddard, who we mentioned previously, who was being sued by her estranged father for financial support. Okay. And when this was a tough one, this was a really sensitive issue, and he ended up using his legal skills to very cleverly arrange for Paulette to pay a reasonable amount to her father, but still save her reputation so that people didn't think she was an ungrateful daughter who didn't take care of her dad. didn't take care of her elderly father. (laughs) Exactly. And in the second case, and again, it involves one of our podcast favorites. Yes. He represented 21-year-old rising star Carol Landis in her divorce from her first husband, Irving Wheeler. Wheeler sued her because he suspected, correctly I might add, (laughs) that his young wife was having an affair with director uh, Busby Berkeley. Well, Boutser won the case and along the way, he started dating Carol Landis <laughs> because why not? It's all part of the service. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but that case really made him the go-to divorce attorney for Hollywood's elite. Yes. So back to Dorothy Lamore. They have been on again, off again, on again, off again. They get engaged, right? Yes. And before they could make plans to wed, World War II breaks out. So Which that changes really changed everything. everything. And, and yeah. I find this really interesting. Uh, and it says a lot about Dorothy Lamore, I, I think. She broke off the engagement with Boutser when we went to war because she so devoted her life to selling war bonds and crisscrossing the country with USO shows and trying to raise the morale of the soldiers. I mean, she really took it seriously. A lot of people think that she used the war as maybe an excuse to get out, out of, of this it? relationship because uh-huh. it was inevitable that it would probably end. So right. it, was, it was a good good reason to cut it off. Yeah. Can I just add one thing about Dorothy? Yeah. And I think it sums it up with Dorothy when she wrote in her autobiography, I knew that Greg was not a one-woman man, but I was definitely a one-man woman. I think that sums it up. I think it does too. So Bowser ends up joining the Navy as a lieutenant, and he actually worked with the Specialized Blimp Division during the war. Who knew? (laughs) We have more to talk about regarding Greg Bowser, including Bugsy Siegel and Joan Crawford. But before we do that, it's time for our Hollywood pop quiz. Steve. Keeping with the Greg Boutzer theme, Boutzer famously, or infamously, I should say, dated Joan Crawford. And we're going to get into all of that. 
Well, when Crawford's daughter Christina's scandalous tell-all book was later made into the movie Mommy Dearest, Bouncer was the inspiration for one of the characters in the movie. Name the character and who played the role. All right, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, Steve and Ann will be right back, but first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. It's that pivotal scene in The Wizard of Oz. That's where Dorothy, the lion, and Toto have been put to sleep by the witch's poisonous poppies. And then Glinda, the good witch, intervenes and sends a glorious sprinkling of snow to wake up our heroes. Well, in order to achieve that effect, technicians at MGM took asbestos. That's right, asbestos, and shredded it. That created a magical snowfall. See, at the time, no one knew that the white, flaky, fibrous mineral was actually extremely dangerous. You can even see these menacing flakes in classic films such as Citizen Kane, Holiday Inn, It's a Wonderful Life, and White Christmas. The good news? Well, this method was finally discarded back in the 1950s. Thank goodness for the invention of CGI, huh? And now, back to Steve and Nan from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Returning to the very full life of Greg Bouncer, um, he actually meets his second wife at the home of Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce. As you said during the break, he knows how to play this. He knows how to meet people. And he marries Buff Cobb. Very briefly, it was an in-and-out relationship. Again, it just helped his social standing. By that point, he's back in Hollywood. He's doing his thing. And he has a really interesting relationship or encounter with Bugsy Siegel. The notorious yes. gangster. So Billy Wilkerson was part of the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. Yes. But Bugsy Siegel wanted a big <laughs> a big part of that, correct? Yes. I think he moved in and tried to push Billy Wilkerson out of the deal. And Greg Boucher was not about to let that happen. I don't think Boucher knew of Siegel's reputation or he just didn't care. Yeah. But they had an encounter where Boucher read in the riot act. Wilkerson was back in the deal. And somehow, Greg Boucher lived to tell about it. He lived it. to tell about it, which, which elevates his reputation oh. and social status even more, yes. right? And his, yes. his law practice is continuing to explode with clients. Yeah. Now, this next lady that he has a relationship with is probably the most tempestuous of his life, yes. I would imagine. And probably the most public fighting that he probably ever experienced with one of his ladies. Right. And I think he set his sights on her, you know. And, of course, we're, we're talking about Joan Crawford. Right. 
Um, she had just won an Oscar for Mildred Pierce. She was on a major comeback in Hollywood. So all of a sudden, Boutser thought, well, maybe dating Joan Crawford is a, a good thing. Yeah, because they had had that little yes. dalliance. And now it's like she's got an Oscar on her mantle. So she's the person to set. Right. So I think he sets his sights on her. Yeah. You know, she was still miffed about the whole thing with Lana Turner back in the day. So, of course, using his charm, he woos her back. And they're all of a sudden the it couple. Yes, yes. I love this quote that you have of Rosalind Russell. <laughs> She's, she talks about their relationship, and she says that Greg treated Crawford like a star. When they entered a room, he remained a few steps behind her. He often carried her dog or her knitting bag. She was always knitting, apparently. And at the dinner table, he did everything but feed her. <laughs> God love Rosalind Russell. Yes. <laughs> he had helped Crawford adopt her twin children's, which okay. is why they were back in each other's lives. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, the romance started. And it was a very tumultuous relationship. It was on again, yes. off again, you know, embarrassing fights, drunken brawls, uh, you, you name it. Well, the gossip columnists had a field day with I it. I bet. What Crawford did do is she helped his business. She referred all of her friends to Greg, um, Jane Wyman, Ginger Rogers, John Garfield, even her second husband, Francho Tone. Yeah. And she was also quite generous. Well, very generous. She gave uh, Greg expensive jewelry, like a pair of $10,000 Cartier cufflinks, which we will talk about <laughs> a little bit later. They will play a part. <laughs> um, a black Cadillac convertible. But apparently, tracking whether they were together or not became a game in Hollywood. <laughs> Because it was that, but you know, in between some of the breakups, he managed to date Sonia Henney and Joan Caulfield and Marilyn Maxwell and even Ava Gardner, who we've spoken of. They would almost date as revenge. Like Crawford would start dating Lana Turner's ex-husband, Steve Crane. So Boutser would date Meryl Oberon. Boutser would date Rita Hayworth. So Joan Crawford would date the British actor Peter Shaw. It was a tit-for-tat revenge type of thing. So finally, they reconcile for a while And as a gesture of their love, Joan Crawford buys matching Cadillacs for the two lovebirds. Oh, and all was well. Uh, Yeah, for for a a while. (laughs) So according to Gladstone's book, when Crawford heard a rumor that Boutser was holding hands with Lana (laughs) Turner, all hell broke loose. All hell broke loose. And then he accused her of sleeping with writer-director Charles Martin. Yes. So they get in this huge fight. Huge fight. He storms out of the house. He rips off those $10,000 Cartier cufflinks and hands them back to her. And what does she do? Well, Joan, (laughs) in the heat of the moment, she takes them ceremoniously and she drops them in the toilet and flushes. She forgot how expensive they were. So, of course, a plumber's called (laughs) because she's got to get the jewels back. She's got to get them back, right? So, Bouncer jumps into his Cadillac and rams it into a wall. Love is harsh. Yeah, love love is a battlefield. Love is a battlefield, (laughs) and they proved it. So, Arlene Dahl is just starting out, right? Yes. And beautiful. Ingenue. Ingenue. Beautiful actress, 17 years old. She's invited to this black tie party to honor Cole Porter. At the party, she meets Boutser, who is there with Joan Crawford. And Boutser is flirting with <laughs> Arlene Dahl. That's what Boutser did. That's what he did. And of course, Crawford notices, and she proceeds to accidentally spill her red wine all over Arlene Dahl's white dress. <laughs> Meow. I know it. And Joan Fontaine, who we also have some stories about, yes. witnessed this and 
apparently accosted Crawford, saying, You did that on purpose, you bitch. <laughs> now, Why, how come I don't get invited to parties like that? <laughs> That's just all I want to know. I'm never going to wear a white dress again. <laughs> The battling lovers, they continue to feel the gossip columnists with their on-again, off-again fights and, and romance. But at the same time, Boutzer continued to get busy with his dealings with Billy Wilkerson. Yes. And we mentioned earlier that Billy Wilkerson started the blacklist with his Billy's List in The Hollywood Reporter. Well, he made the mistake of naming Myrna Loy mm-hmm. on that list. And Myrna Loy was a strong-willed, powerful woman, and she was not about to stand for it. And she was not a communist. And she wasn't a communist or even a a sympathizer. But so she sues Billy Wilkerson. So, of course, Boutzer defends him. Once Boutzer did some investigation, he learned that Myrna Loy was not a communist, had no ties to communism, and that she was erroneously placed on this list. Right. He convinced Billy Wilkerson to retract the retract the statement, apologize, which is something apparently that Wilkerson never did. That's just how great... His skills were at convincing people to do what he wanted. So back to Boutzer and Crawford, because I just can't get enough of them. So it's October 1949, and their relationship is really kind of at its breaking point, right? Yes. So they attend this party (laughs) at MGM chief Louis B. Mayer's house, right? Yep. There are two accounts of what happened at that party. Do you want to share what? Well, according to who you listen to, either Boutzer was flirting with a young starlet. Okay. Imagine that. Okay. That's A. Or he ignored (laughs) Crawford all night and played poker with the boys in the back room. Scenario B. Okay. Whichever scenario it was, it pissed Joan Crawford off. You don't want to do that. You not want to piss off Joan Crawford. (laughs) So, either way, she picks up a crystal ashtray and throws it at Boutzer at this party at Louis B. Mayer's house. Misses him by inches and she makes up with him. I know. They they managed to kind of reconcile in the heat of the moment. Um, Well, at least that's what you think is happening. Remember, she won an Oscar. Yeah, she's a good actress. So they leave the party, and Joan says... Let me drive. Yeah, let me drive. And um, (laughs) so she takes Boutzer in her car to a very isolated part of uh, the canyon. And then she says, oh... I think there's something wrong with the car. <laughs> oh, gee, maybe I should pull over. Well, she pulls over and she has Boutzer go out to check the tires. And the minute he gets out of the car, she guns it yes. <laughs> and she's and, gone. And this is in the 40s, Sunset Boulevard. Right now, you'd go, oh, oh you could walk up to any... Door, yeah, yes. knock on the door. Not back then, right? Yeah, apparently he had to walk 12 miles back to the Bel Air Hotel, which is where he was living at the time. Wow. But feeling a bit remorseful... The next morning, he shows up at her house, at Joan Crawford's house, with an armful of long-stemmed roses, right? And the maid lets him in and tells him to wait. And Crawford descends the stairs in, as you put it, true movie star fashion. (laughs) And she says, upon seeing the roses, she says, is this to apologize? And he says... Um, Yes, of course. Yeah. And then she pauses dramatically and says, then kneel as you make your apology. (laughs) Well, that was it for Boutzer. He had had enough. He basically said... F you, bullshit. He threw the roses down, stormed out, and uh, that was it. And that was it. Now, he later runs into one of Joan Crawford's former husbands, 
Francho Tone, and they compare notes, right? <laughs> Bouncer and Boys Tone. compare notes too, ladies. Yeah, I know. I was kind of surprised. So what happened? Uh, Francho Tone asked what happened, and Bouncer told him the story. And then he said, you know, can I ask you, has anything like this had ever happened while they were together? Right. Tone says, well, yes, it did. And Bouncer asked him, well, what did you do? And Tone just simply answered, I knelt. Oh, my gosh. Well, after the Joan Crawford affair was done, Boucher got back to work, and thrown in his lap was one of the most high-profile divorce cases Hollywood ever saw. And, of course, that was the divorce of popular actress Ingrid Bergman and her divorce from the Swedish neurosurgeon Dr. Peter Lindstrom. Right. And it was a doozy. It was complicated. Ingrid Bergman had fallen in love with her director, Roberto Rossellini. She was pregnant with his baby. So things didn't look good for Ingrid. No. But she Especially had, in that time yes. period. It was and just she had the good time. sense, though, to hire Greg Bautzer. Yes, she did. And it sent her into exile in Europe, yes, right? Yes, it did. And she ended up remaining there for several years. But the trial took Bautzer's career into the stratosphere. Yes, absolutely. Because he managed to, in spite of Ingrid being the perceived bad villainous in this. Right. He managed to get her shared custody with their daughter, Pia, which no one thought he would be able to do. Right. So he really used his legal skills to benefit yeah. Ingrid Bergman in what everyone thought was an impossible case. He was not just a pretty face. He really <laughs> did have that skill as well. Yes. Now his clients, I mean, we just keep going higher and higher and higher. Catherine Hepburn, Gene Kelly, Sophia Loren, Robert Mitchum. I mean, the list goes on and on. Judy Garland. Yes, everybody. And he continued to do divorce cases. You know, he handled Frank Sinatra's divorce case against his first wife, Nancy, when he fell in love with Ava Gardner. And in a surprising turn, Bouncer represented Nancy Sinatra. But despite this, he became friends with Sinatra again later. Yes, because apparently during that divorce case, Bouncer put Sinatra through the ringer. He won Nancy a huge settlement. It was astronomical. So you would think that Frank Sinatra would just hate the guy, but he was so charming and so likable that they ended up being buddies. Yeah. We mentioned earlier his involvement with really the elite in the corporate world and William Randolph Hearst and Marion <laughs> Davies, Greg Bautzer is involved in their situation as well. Yes, Hearst really came to see Bautzer as a confidant and he really trusted him. So when Hertz was dying in 1950, he wanted to make sure that his longtime mistress, Marion Davies, was taken care of in his will. And he was still married to his wife, Millicent, at yes, the time. who would not give him a divorce because I think otherwise he would have divorced her married Marion and been a lot happier. Yes. So Bouncer drew up a trust agreement which granted Davies control of his publishing empire, which was huge. And Hertz told Bouncer, he said, no matter what happens, take care of Marion. And Bouncer promised he would. And he managed to find a way to do that that didn't alienate Hearst's sons as well. Well, it a little bit did because they're the ones who challenged the validity of the will. So maybe, Right. Yeah, but in yeah, the yeah, end, yeah. It, yeah. it all kind of yeah. worked out he, for everybody. Yeah, because the sons challenge. Bouncer steps in with an, another compromise. Instead, it gives the sons control of the publishing, but it gave Davies this financial windfall yeah. that set her up for the rest of her life. And he really took her in as sort of an aunt figure and absolutely fulfilled his promise and took care of Marion Davies till the day she died, which was beautiful. Yeah. The next working relationship that Greg Bouncer has is with Mr. Howard Hughes. Yes. Bouncer knew how to 
gain the confidence of these powerful players, and he did it with Hughes. I think Hughes really saw a lot of himself in Bouncer mm-hmm. and really took to him. And I think one of Bouncer's main jobs working as a lawyer for Howard Hughes yeah. was handling all of Howard Hughes's mistresses. Yes. It was a huge part of his responsibility, which was interesting. Yeah. And he continued to want to add people to that fold, Howard Hughes did. I mean, there's that story about asking Greg Bouncer oh, yes. to ask Elizabeth Taylor's <laughs> mother if Howard Hughes gives you a million dollars will Elizabeth Taylor marry Howard Hughes? Which is just... Well, A, uh, Howard Hughes and Elizabeth Taylor had never met. I know, they had never met. And B, Elizabeth Taylor's mother just says, tax-free. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And when Greg Boutzer learned that Howard Hughes had died on April 5th, 1976, according to the chauffeur who was driving him at the time, they pulled over and Boutzer cried like a baby for 10 minutes. That just shows you how much he loved and valued Howard Hughes. Yeah, what a relationship. Now, in 1955, Bouncer meets an actress at a cocktail party. Yes. And her name is Dana Winter. The, the beautiful brunette who most people know from Invasion of the Body yeah, Snatchers. Yeah, 1956. Yes, she was incredible. I think his views on relationship were changing at this point because he sort of became obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. He wooed her across the whole United States as she did this um, press junket, press right? junket. He sent fresh flowers. He really, really courted her. And she finally agreed to go out to dinner with him. Okay. And on the very first date, he basically says, I'm going to marry you one day. And she laughs and says, you're a terribly nice man, but you're the last man in the world I would ever marry. And he's so perplexed. He goes, why? She says, (laughs) Well, we have nothing in common, and you have an appalling reputation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then guess what happens? They got married. Yeah, they got married. (laughs) 1956, they get married, and they have a son. They do. A son, Mark, who was the apple of their eye. At this point, and again, it's the theme of Hollywood during the day, Greg Boucher's alcoholism starts to really play a part in their marriage, and the dark demons of alcohol basically ruined the great relationship he had with Dana Winter. Mm-hmm. They separated. They still remained friends. They were co-parents of Mark very successfully. This is when his alcoholism is starting to really get out of control. In 1965, they separated, but they didn't officially divorce until 1981. Yes, and stayed lifelong friends. At this point, with his marriage to Dana Winters behind him, he really focuses on the swan song of his career. Right. And he really, really got involved in some high-profile, powerful cases. He was the one who was instrumental in setting up producer Bob Evans as the head of Paramount Pictures. Right. You know, he also helped broker the deal for Elliot Hyman and his company Seven Arts to purchase Warner Brothers in 1967. He orchestrated the 1969 sale of MGM Studios to uh, businessman Kirk Kerkorian. Right. So he's really Power. still involved uh, in so all powerful. Of these. Yeah. But by the 70s, he was an icon. He was an institution. Everybody knew him. He was a celebrity. He still continued to handle these scandalous, high-profile cases. He actually represented tennis player Renee Richards, who had undergone sex reassignment surgery at age 40 and was being banned from playing women's tennis by the U.S. Tennis Association, which was a landmark case for transgender rights. That he won. Yes, he won decidedly. And Um, he defended Kirk Kerkorian in the fire, the MGM fire that killed 85 people. And in 1972, he met the woman who would become his final wife, Nikki 
Shank Dantine, who was the ex-wife of actor Helmut Dantine and the daughter of Nick Shank, who's the chairman of Lowe's, yes. which owned MGM Studios yes. in the glory days. And apparently they had a very lovely relationship. And she was with him when he finally passed away October 26, 1987, of a heart attack. But just to show the power of who Greg Boutzer was in this town, his services were held at Beverly Hills Presbyterian Church. His pallbearers were former U.S. Secretary of State Alexander Haig, Kurt Kokorian, lawyer Sidney Korshak, producer Cubby Broccoli, lawyer Patty Glazer, Universal Studios head Lou Wasserman, and then the honorary pallbearers, Army Archard and Tom Bradley, the former mayor of Los, Los Angeles, Angeles, the former governor of California, Pat Brown, uh, lyricist Sammy Kahn, actor Kirk Douglas. I mean, it just goes to show who this guy was and how powerful and beloved he was. He knew absolutely everybody, and he was beloved. And not bad for a poor kid from San Pedro who just wants to be part of the glamour of Hollywood. Very well put. Well, I think it is time for the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. Steve. Yes, and the question was, Greg Boutzer is portrayed in the movie Mommy Dearest, which of course was based on Joan Crawford's daughter's scandalous book called Mommy Dearest. He is portrayed in the film as a character named Greg Savitt, and he was played by Steve Forrest, who we've talked about before on the podcast. Yes, we have. Well, Steve, what a fascinating life this man has led. I think in my next life, I want to come back as Greg Bowser. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's ripe. I think his story is ripe for a biopic, for somebody Bradley to Cooper, yeah. where are you? Yeah. Oh, he would be a great Greg yes. Bowser. Well, we hope that you'll follow us on social media. Our handle is at From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. And we are on Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube, where you will also see some photographs of the people that we were talking about today. And we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions, comments, anything, uh, please write us at info at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneider. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneebly and Toth. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, 
and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.